This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. At first, it was dismissed as a racist conspiracy theory. But now the proposition that COVID-19 started with a lab leak is back in the headlines with two U.S. spy agencies coming to that conclusion. We'll revisit a book on the subject and Toronto becomes a sanctuary for banned books. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's the latest in a long line of theories on the benefits of vitamin D. According to new research, there's evidence that it can prevent dementia. Researchers compared older Americans taking vitamin D to those who didn't take the supplement over a decade to monitor the rate of developing Alzheimer's. They found that those taking the supplement developed dementia at a 40% lower rate. The effects were greater in women than men, and in those with normal cognition rather than those with mild cognitive impairment, which is associated with a higher risk of dementia. The University of Calgary co-author has launched a separate study called Can Protect to get Canadian-specific data. Americans with diabetes are getting a break on the cost of insulin. Drug maker Eli Lilly will cap the cost of its most commonly prescribed insulin drugs at $35 a month, which is about what it costs here in Canada. The life-saving drug has grown increasingly expensive south of the border, forcing many Americans to ration their medicines or discontinue them altogether. Those annoying hospital sounds can cause stress for patients, visitors, and staff. Now a new study out of McMaster University suggests changing the sound of medical devices can improve the quality of health care. The team compared standard flat beeps with alarm tones that mimic musical notes. Co-author Michael Schutz, a music professor, says by just tweaking the sounds, They can still relay important health information without disturbing patients. The authors say the change comes with a minimal cost and no side effects. Data by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration found that hospital alarms in the U.S. contributed to more than 500 deaths between 2005 and 2008. I just don't want to do it here. If this is a big success, which I think it will be, I'd like to do it in in Belfast, Dublin, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Manchester, and just keep it going. Sir Rod Stewart has set up a mobile health scanning unit in Essex, England. The singer said it was ridiculous people were having to wait long periods to get essential scans and treatment. The 78-year-old singer is also calling for nurses' wages to rise as the UK government is currently holding talks with nursing unions around pay and working conditions. Stewart warned if his country doesn't have a national health service, health care will become 
like the United States. He was a jazz innovator known as the Sage of the Saxophone, and he performed on 10 albums with Canadian icon Joni Mitchell. American jazz great Wayne Shorter has died at 89. No cause of death was given. His compositions and pioneering saxophone playing sounded through more than half a century of American music. Shorter was a tenor saxophonist who made his debut in 1959 and would go on to be a founding member of two of the most seminal jazz groups, Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers and the Miles Davis Quintet. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. At first, it was dismissed as a conspiracy theory. But this week, both the FBI and the U.S. Department of Energy concluded that an accidental laboratory leak in China most likely caused the coronavirus pandemic. Other government agencies still believe the virus jumped from animals to humans, and the authorities concede there is no consensus on the matter. That's why I thought it was a good time to revisit my October 2021 interview with Toronto investigative journalist Elaine Dewar. She wrote a book on the subject, and she explained how she reached her conclusions in On the Origins of the Deadliest Pandemic in a Hundred Years, an investigation. It didn't take very long after the pandemic was declared, and we thought that we had the answer to how it started, and that was that it jumped from animals to humans in this wet market in Wuhan. Except that the earliest papers that were published in peer-reviewed journals, and I'm talking here The Lancet and Nature, make it quite, on the New England Journal of Medicine, make it quite clear that the first epidemiological paper looking at who the first infected persons were clearly showed that 44% of the first group of infected persons had no relationship whatsoever to that market. So while it was pushed by people who had an interest in pushing the spillover theory, that it must have, you know, unleashed itself in the wet market, the facts were otherwise right from the beginning. So how come nobody, certainly in the West, cottoned on to that? Oh, I think lots of people in the West cottoned on to that. The, you know, the, the argument about lab leak versus natural spillover really began also at the end of January of 2020. And Science, which is a leading journal like Nature, published an article about how this time China was cooperating as opposed to the original SARS when it didn't. And in that article, uh, they quoted a guy named Richard Ebright, who's a leading scholar um, in the United States, who said, you know, maybe it's a spillover, but it's just as likely it's a lab leak. From that point forward, uh, those who had been working with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and with its neighbor, the Wuhan CDC, who had been studying coronaviruses from bats in China since the first SARS epidemic, immediately leaped into print uh, to say those who uh, consider this to be a, a possibility, a lab leak, a possibility, um, are basically conspiracy theorists, and they should, you know, be quiet. How did the lab leak theory get back on the table? Because there were people who just didn't buy it. 
getting to the bottom line, your theory is a version of the lab leak theory. It is. People sort of on the margin of, of science have been getting very upset about the way China was controlling the narrative of origin, the WHO was in effect going along with it, and leading persons in the United States who were working in concert with Chinese colleagues were in effect helping shape that narrative. And they began to dig up documents and articles and papers uh, which really presented another story, which described the illnesses of six miners who were working in Yunnan uh, in a mine loaded up with bats and bat feces, uh, who became so ill that three of the six actually died. And it turned out that the doctors who were treating them, you know, tested for everything. They were thinking maybe it's bacteria, no, fungi, no. Tested for coronavirus, and they didn't get a, a complete response, but it looked to them like it was a SARS-like something. So they sent samples, again, to the Batwoman, Shi Zhang Li, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, Virology, 13 samples in all, taken over the course of four years. A group in uh, the U.S. called um, Bioscience Resource Org, which is run by two people, Jonathan Latham and his partner, Allison Wilson, had a look at this material and developed a very interesting thesis in which their argument is that whatever infected those miners was definitely SARS-like, and whatever it was had the time to fully adapt itself to human beings while in those miners' lungs, because those miners were sick for four or five months, and there would have been a very high rate of replication of the virus, and it would have adapted itself over time uh, to human beings. It's their belief that those samples which went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology were either then studied and somehow accidentally released or finally uh, led to the generation of a new kind of virus that had simply not been published before. Now, I think that thesis is a really good one. Elaine Dewar, fascinating. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Elaine Dewar talking about her book on the origin of the deadliest pandemic in a hundred years, an investigation. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, why Toronto libraries have become book sanctuaries. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca. When it comes to the subject of book banning, most of us think about the Middle Ages or the Nazi regime or science fiction. But it's happening more and more often, especially in the U.S., where the volumes that have been challenged include Anne Frank's The Diary of a Young Girl and Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. That's why the Toronto Public Library System has become a book sanctuary, offering special sections with 50 banned titles aimed at all age groups. I talked with Chief Librarian Vickery Bowles. 
this is a movement started by Chicago Public Library. And uh, what we've done is we've joined the uh, Book Sanctuary Movement and we've declared all of our 100 branches and our online spaces as book sanctuaries. And we've identified 50 books, adult, children's, and teen books that have been censored or challenged in a public library or a school library in North America. And we've made all of those books available for borrowing in our branches and online. And in addition to that, we've put those same books, those 50 books, into a special reference collection at the Toronto Reference Library so people can see all of the books all together in one place. We've heard a lot about book banning in the United States, but is it happening in Canada? Yes. We've always had challenges um, to books in our collections, but certainly that number of challenges has increased, although not to the same extent as which is going on right now in the United States. Uh, In addition to that, we're also seeing challenges to uh, programs and other events held at libraries that people are wanting to cancel. So that's another uh, form of, of censorship which uh, libraries are um, facing. What are some of the books that have been challenged here and by whom? There's um, Entangle Makes Three is is a book that has been widely challenged in North America. It's a children's book. It's a story about uh, two male penguins who adopt a baby penguin. The Atonement by Ian McEwen was challenged at Toronto Public Library due to its uh, grammar and sentence structure citing concerns that it would influence and encourage poor writing. Judy Bloom's Blubber was also challenged in at Toronto Public Library by a parent who thought the bullying was too graphic for children to read. So those are some of the examples. You know, there's The Diviners by Margaret Lawrence, Fifty Shades of Grey, Gender Queer, a memoir. It's a graphic novel, and that's been widely challenged in the United States since it was published in 2019. And in fact, the focus of many challenges to uh, books in the United States has been with LGBTQ plus content and content about uh, the history and experiences of African Americans. And we are seeing some of those same uh, trends here in Canada. So first of all, what is allegedly wrong with the diviners? The three main objections to the book were its vulgarity, its lack of morality, and possible negative effects on students. Do you see this as just kind of a a spillover of what's going on south of the border? Yes. You know, public libraries across the world have policies because we have to uh, deal with challenges to our book collections in particular. Yes, it is a spillover in terms of the increase and in terms of the the trends. You know, for instance, Drag Queen Storytimes, which we all have and, and many libraries have in Canada, those are increasingly being challenged. And there was a recent protest at a Calgary public library that was fairly well publicized. So we are seeing more and more of those kinds of challenges here in Canada. What kind of programs that the library offers have people challenged? We've had to add security to our own Dry Queen story times. We haven't actually had a confrontation at an event, but we've had people say they're going to challenge a particular program, so we've had to add security. In addition to that, we had a program last year with Dr. Carl Hart, who is a Columbia University professor of psychology, and he has written a book, Drug Use for Adults. And that was challenged, and people demanded to cancel the program, some people, but we didn't. And then another one 
uh, we received a lot of challenges actually from some people in uh, Canada and the United States and even in India for a book called Modi's India, How Hindu Nationalism is Destroying the World's Largest Democracy. And that was a book uh, published by Princeton University Press. It was a discussion with the author and someone who was interviewing him and kind of challenging the author on some of his ideas in his book. So that's another example of a program that we were, uh, people demanded we cancel. So what would you like to leave us with? There's a a slogan I I heard last week from the American Library Association, which is, uh, free people read freely. And I think that says it all. People can pick and choose what they want to read or what they want to hear on the news or see in a movie or a video or go to a program. But the point is you pick and choose. You can choose not to, but you can't make those choices for other people. And uh, it's important for people to discuss and debate controversial issues civilly and to listen to each other. And that's the way we progress in a democracy. Thanks so much, Vickery Bowles. Thank you. That was Toronto Public Library Chief Librarian Vickery Bowles on Toronto's Book Sanctuary. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.